Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Titus chapter 2. And while you turn there, I want to thank uh, our Adventure Week volunteers as well. So grateful for you serving and uh, passing on the gospel to the children of this church and the, the larger community at large. Um, what a wonderful, wonderful week. And I'm so confident that the labor uh, from this past week was not in vain. It seems so plain to me that God can use that to ignite faith in the hearts of, of young children. And, and it was just beautiful to behold. Uh, on Tuesday, unprompted, this is my son Henry's first adventure week. I think it was on Tuesday, uh, we got home and we were talking and he said, God is in charge. My sin is large. Jesus died for you and me, so repent and believe. And I was like, I think I need to die now. That, that was the most <laughs> amazing thing that I've ever heard. And I just was happy forever. And uh, on Friday, there was the, the, the preschool presentation where they do their uh, kind of recount the week in front of all the parents. And I got to take a video of him. And it is the sweetest video of all time. So if you want to see that video, I have it on my phone and I can show it to you. But it just makes me so, so, so thankful uh, for your faithful labor. So thank you. Um, you. It's interesting. I think the passage we're going to be studying today, I, I feel like it really truly validates the ministry of Adventure Week. Uh, we're going to be working through Titus chapter 2 over the next several weeks. And in Titus chapter 2, we see Paul addressing specific groups of people, uh, groups of people in unique stations of life. And so we're going to see Paul address men and women, older men and women, and younger men and women, and bond servants. So uh, th there's an application of the word to people at particular ages and stages, uh, even genders, in, uh, the, uh, th that Paul is going to be addressing the word to. And it makes me think of things like adventure. We can go, yeah, it's good that we take a week out of the year and devote our time, our energy, our resources to this ministry so that the young children uh, may hear the gospel, receive it, be shaped and formed by it. And, and so uh, not only am I grateful for Adventure Week, but I'm grateful for how Adventure Week, I think, is uh, even preparing my heart to receive this word in a different sort of way. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to consider Titus chapter 2 today. Uh, in just a moment, we'll read through verses 1 through 10, and we'll see Paul addressing uh, the, the members of what might be a typical Cretan household. Again, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and bond servants. And he wants to say specific things to them. What does it look like for you to live out your faith, for the gospel to be experienced, enjoyed, and lived out amongst the household of the people of God? And, uh, and so we want to unpack that. Today, we're going to be looking specifically at Paul's instruction to older men and older women. So we want to see that instruction. What does he have to say to older men and older women? And as we do so, we want to see two larger principles, larger points emerge. And, and so that's how we'll spend our time. Those two points are this. The Christian life has a trajectory of order. The Christian life has a trajectory of order. And then two, sound doctrine leads to ordered living. 
Sound doctrine leads to ordered living. So we're going to see that in the first three verses of Titus 2, but we're going to read now this entire household code starting with verse 1. So follow along with me, please. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for gathering us here together to worship you. Those united in a common faith uh, who can worship because of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would meet with us and you would uh, display your glory in the face of Christ. That we would be edified, have our faith strengthened as a result of our time in the word this morning. And so Lord, um, according to your spirit's powerful work, take your word and apply it to our hearts. Allow us to hear and see so that your son may be exalted and lifted up. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, first point, first thing we want to see from the word this morning is that the Christian life has a trajectory of order. Paul is going to uh, give some instruction to older men and older women. Before we see that instruction, it's important for us to clarify who is the audience here? Who are these older men and older women that Paul is wanting to instruct? Some will say it's pretty common for people to say that older men and older women are those aged 50 to 56. And it may sound strange to you, but this has been a pretty common teaching on this passage because some of the church's first theologians cited some Greek writings where this Greek writer essentially categorized people into groupings And older men and older women were aged 50 to 56. I don't buy that for a second. Um, uh, If you are 49 and a half, this passage still applies to you, I think. Uh, If you're 57 and a half, it still applies to you. And if if you are 12 or 25, this is God's word for you, for his people, for our mutual edification and instruction When this passage uses the wording older men and older women, I think that's meant to be more of a general term and it can even be a relativized term depending on uh, a particular congregation. Who are the older men and women amongst you? And so uh, I don't know that it's super important for us to parse out, well, you are an older man and you're an older woman. No, we wanna take this a little bit more generally and hope that this instructs those of you who fall into whatever this category is exactly. So with that said, what does Paul want to say to 
the older men and women uh, in Crete. And what does Paul want to say to the older men and women here at Grace? Starts with older men. Older men are to be sober-minded. They're to be dignified and self-controlled. The idea that I think Paul's getting across here is that older men are to be steady. Steady. They're not concerned with the things of this world. Rather, they are singularly focused on the cause of Christ above all else. And so their actions reflect that. The The older man is to be like that tree planted by streams of living water, rooted and healthy, not being swayed, steady. And not only that, but older men are to be sound in faith, love and steadfastness or perseverance. And this is an example of what's called a Christian triad. This is a formula that shows up from time to time in the scriptures where the authors of scripture will say things like, uh, I pray that you would be built up in in faith, uh, love, and hope. And and the idea behind that is, is that faith, hope, and love are, are really the essential Christian attributes or virtues. This is what it means to be a Christian. And so the older men uh, uh, in Crete, they are to be people who are uniquely sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance that works itself out in hope. I think what what Paul is saying here is, is that the older men are to be those who possess a vibrant faith. And so this is quite the call, you older men. You're to be... that sort of person who is steady, who serves as a type of anchor for the rest of us. You're to be like a tree, unmoved, focused on what truly matters. You're to have a vibrant faith, a zealous faith. No small call here. What about older women? Older women are to be likewise reverent in behavior. In other words, they're to be like the older men. They are to share these qualities and characteristics of the older men. They're to be likewise. And they're to be reverent. That's unique. They're to be like priestesses at the temple. That's what this word is getting at. They're to be those who go and they approach God like a priest would approach God with fear and trembling, recognizing him as holy and awesome. Not only that, they are to embody this. They're to live as if eternity is real and God is upon the throne. They're not to become slaves to things like slander or drunkenness. And finally, they're to become teachers. And I think the idea behind this teaching that they're to engage in is that they are to uh, be formally and informally discipling the other women uh, who are part of the church. And we'll flesh that out in the coming weeks. So there you have it. In opposition to the Cretans who are living disordered lives, who are living chaotic lives, this is how men and women are to live. There are good things here for older men and women to devote themselves to. These are things that that we ought to faithfully and prayerfully pursue. Uh, Of course, we should desire to be self-controlled. We should desire to be reverent, dignified, be sound in faith, love, and in hope. And given that to be the case, I, I think 
It's also important that we back up a little bit and see the principle that's in play here in this passage. In Titus 2, 1 through 3, I think what we're seeing in these instructions is a trajectory of order to the Christian life. So I want to think about that phrase for a second. There's a trajectory of order to the Christian life. The Christian life has a trajectory. A trajectory. One of the striking things about this passage is that the commandments and the instructions given to older men and older women aren't unique. They're they're not really unique at all to older men and older women. For instance, older men and younger men and younger women all in this passage are instructed to be self-controlled. So that's not unique to being an older man. Both older men and older women are instructed to be dignified or reverent. In, in fact, the, the things that older men and older women are called to are, are to be the very things that characterize the elders, the overseers of the church. These things that, that older men and older women are called to are really just what it means to be a Christian. It's not like if you're 25, then it's okay to, to go and, and get drunk. Now, that's, that's just reserved for our 50 to 56-year-old older women. It, it, this, is, this isn't saying that for some Christians, it's okay to not be self-controlled. No, that's reserved for the older men and older women in your midst. No, these are the things that are to define and characterize the Christian community. And so something unique is being said here. And I think the idea is it's not so much that, that older men and older uh, women are to possess something that other Christians don't. No, these are qualities or characteristics that, that characterize older men and older women. These are things that older men and older women are to possess at a greater degree than the younger generations might. So we should all possess these, but older men and older women are to shine in these areas. They're to be exemplars in these areas. Paul is saying that older men and older women are to serve as the epicenter of vibrant faith for the Christian community. The epicenter of vibrant faith. They should have a life-giving and sobering steadiness that balances the church. They should be pillars within the church. The Christian life is one where there's a trajectory of faith. They possess a measure of faith. But that measure of faith is to grow and grow and mature and mature to the point where it characterizes you. It's to grow until steadiness and dignity characterize you. There's a trajectory that we are all on in this walk with the Lord. There's a trajectory to the Christian life. But there's a trajectory of order here. I think Paul wants to speak uniquely into the Cretan context that Titus is in. Think about the opposite of all these things that older men and older women are called to. It's the opposite of sobriety or self-control, it's the opposite of reverence, of uplifting talk, or teaching what is good. The opposite of these things is chaos. It's chaos. And chaos reigned in Crete. Men were fools who were only consumed with themselves. Prominent women were known in Crete to, to drink excessively. 
And as a result, they used their tongues to slander. They they were people who were using their their tongues to set fire. And and so, so Paul wants to speak into this and say, it should not be of you. No, no, older men and older women in the midst of all of this chaos, you were to stand out in the midst of this culture. You were to be bastions for order. And their lives were to be ones that reflect a trajectory of order to a lost and dying world and reflect a trajectory of order to younger generations who desperately need models and examples of faith. The idea that comes to mind as I think about this passage is uh, the idea of moving into a new house. So last time I, I was uh, up here preaching, I shared with you that I moved recently, my family, I mean, we, we moved from, Brea, or from Fullerton to Brea. And so happy about this move. It's been awesome. Such a blessing. We're grateful for it. But the thing about moving to a new place is you have to move all of your stuff. And uh, that may seem obvious, but it's, it's hard. <laughs> and so part of our move entailed us getting our awesome, lovely, self-sacrificial servant friends to come over to our house and, uh, and load up a truck full of our stuff, take it to the new place in Brea, and unload all of that stuff. And we were able to get all the stuff inside the house or the garage. And... Um, And then our job was done, right? Everything was ready to go, ready to live life. Now, at that point, our house was full of boxes, right? And unfortunately, we got tired towards the end of packing those boxes. So about half of them are just filled with random stuff, not labeled very well. Uh, Most of them end up in the wrong room because you just never know exactly where to put things. You end up with a house that is disordered, where, where chaos reigns. But what happens? So we've been in the house now for about three or four months. And so that was day one. We moved in this awesome place, this place that we're so happy about, but chaos reigned. Well, day by day, week by week, we began to unload those boxes, began to organize things, began to put rooms and spaces into order, made the place feel Nice. Now we still have a long way to go. We still have boxes conveniently and strategically hidden so that when people come over, they don't see them. But, you know, by God's grace, one day we will use our Saturdays and our days off effectively to to completely organize this house. Well, the Christian life is a lot like a house that was recently moved into. There are rooms filled with boxes and clutter. Yes, it's a beautiful, wonderful new house, but, but there's still chaos. There's still disorder. And so these rooms, they need to be put into order. The boxes need to be unpacked and the contents need to be organized. And this passage says that older men and older women, they're not like me who've been in the house for four months. No, they're those who've lived in that house for 20 years, for 30 years. And at this point, Of course, they've organized the boxes, they've unpacked the boxes, and they've moved past that. At this point, they've cleaned their house. 
They've decorated their house. They've made it warm and inviting. At this point, they know their house intimately. They know the doors that creak. They know the the plumbing is weird over here and it makes this sound in this room. At this point, they use their house for others' good. They invite people over. They host birthday parties. It's a place of hospitality. If this is the idea then the passage, I think, raises an important question for us. Older men, older women here at Grace, is your spiritual house in order? Have you sought to put your house into order? Have you done the hard work of unboxing, of unpacking, of cleaning, of decorating, of doing that daily upkeep that is required so that a house would be ordered and warm and inviting? Does your life reflect a trajectory of order? Of course, nobody's will perfectly, but generally speaking, does your life uh, reflect a trajectory of order? Again, this passage says that older men and older women are to serve as the epicenter of vibrant faith for a local church. They're to be ones who are leading the charge in faithful, zealous love for neighbor and for community. They're the ones who are to be uh, setting the bar for preaching the gospel, for living sober, uh, self-controlled lives. Does that sort of thing characterize you? Does that define who you are? Well, if not... This passage is, is meant to serve as a gentle admonition to you. Take account of your life. Take account of your life. And if this isn't you, then this is a great opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus. To, to recognize that you still have time. You still have time to, uh, to be about God's working out his salvation in this earth and in your life. You have time to devote yourself to this task and to come in line with a life that is uh, lived on this trajectory of order. And so we repent and we believe. If this does characterize you, and again, it'll never characterize anybody perfectly, but if this generally characterizes you, I think this passage is meant to be a passage that encourages you and honors you It's meant to be a passage that encourages you to excel still more in this endeavor. It's so striking to me that Kip Docterman stood on this stage before me and he was able to testify to God's faithful provision in his life and in the life of the church. He says, hey, we have a financial need and I have faith that God can handle that. I think about $200,000 and that's as good as $200 billion to me. It's just this crazy sum of money and my faith is weak and I think, how could we ever do that? But Kip says, no, we can because I've seen it happen. I've seen God be that sort of God over and over again in so many spheres of my life. So of course I would have a steadfast and immovable faith. And as he does that, he calls me to believe in Jesus. He calls me to have that same kind of faith. And so now Kip goes from being someone who has a mature faith to one who calls others to share that mature faith with him. And this is what this passage is calling you to, to possess this sort of steady, vibrant faith that begins to invite others into that. At the same time, again, this is God's word for all people. 
And so it doesn't only speak to older men and older women, but it speaks to all of us, every one of us. And especially for younger generations, it asks the question of us, are we those who have now gotten onto that same trajectory of faith, ordered living? If we look into the future 20 years, are we growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Does the fruit of the Spirit characterize us a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more? We have to know that the sort of vibrant faith that is being described here as the bar for older men and older women is a faith that is achieved through daily, mundane acts of faith when you're 25 and when you're 30 and when you're 35. Simple steps of faithful obedience, taking God at his word and trusting in his promises when you have opportunity. When you're tempted to sin, again and again fighting against sin. When you fall, again and again confessing of your sin and repenting. When you have opportunity to believe promises, believing those promises step by step, step by step until you have taken enough steps till you reach maturity. Are you on that trajectory? This passage calls us to take account of our lives. And again, if we are on that trajectory, to repent and believe and to recognize that we still have time to pursue Christ and his purposes for our lives, to become like those steady trees planted by streams of living water. At the same time, I think it also calls us to recognize, honor, and even show deference to those faithful older men and older women in our midst who have modeled this sort of vibrant faith well for us. Sad reality is, is that in the church so often, uh, those older men and older women who possess this sort of faith, they're, they're not often celebrated. In fact, we can sometimes push them aside for younger generations. And this passage calls us to turn the cultural narrative on its head and say, no, we're going to honor those people that scripture calls us to rightly honor. We're gonna respect them. We're going to, to seek to do what we can to make their lives enjoyable. And not only that, but we're going to actively pursue them. In the coming weeks, we're going to see how older men and older women are to pursue the younger generations and disciple them. In this passage, I think we could say, well, one of the things that we can do as younger generations is move faithfully towards those older generations, seek to sit at their feet, seek to glean from their wisdom, from how they've lived their lives. In this passage, we have quite the call. Older men, older women, You are to essentially serve as ideal Christians for us. You're to model vibrant faith, steady, dignified faith, to be like trees planted by streams of living water. And in doing so, call all of us to examine ourselves and to follow your faithful lead. Now I can imagine as you hear that, you might say, okay, I see this. I see this as the expectation, but that's that's heavy. That's a heavy burden to bear. And if I'm being honest, then my house isn't really in all that great of order. Uh, I too have boxes stowed away. I have a long way to go or I haven't upkept my house very well here recently. And so as we consider that very normal response, I think the question becomes, well, how? How do we get to the place where we possess a mature faith? How do we get on that trajectory of ordered living such that we would ever be characterized by faithful ordered living? And so we get to our second point. 
Sound doctrine leads to ordered living. Sound doctrine leads to ordered living. As we read Titus 2, we might be tempted to think that verse 1 doesn't fit. Verses 2 through 10 are pretty clearly a household code. How should the household and even the household of God live? And so if that's what these verses are about, then verse 1 seems to be out of place. But verse 1 is not. Verse 1 controls this entire passage. Paul wants to give us a foundation from which this trajectory of order is to spring. And so we have verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So uh, to see our point here, we need to focus in on the first few words of this verse. But as for you. So this phrase, but as for you, it alerts us to a contrast that is present. Somebody did something, but you are to be different. So it points us back. What's it pointing us to? Take a look at chapter one, verse 16. Just one verse earlier, but the end of chapter one. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul points Titus to people who claim to know God, but whose actions ultimately said otherwise. So Paul essentially says these false teachers, their actions disprove their confession of faith. So with these people in mind, you you have those people in mind, Titus, okay, now you are to be different. You, as for you, you are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. It seems like an odd or interesting transition there, right? A bit of a non sequitur. So you might expect Paul to command and instruct Titus in, in a way that says, okay, so these people disqualify themselves. These people demonstrated that their profession of faith wasn't real through their actions. So you go and you demonstrate that your profession of faith is real by your actions. Or go and command the church to live ordered lives so that they would give uh, uh, evidence to their profession of faith. That's not where Paul goes, though. No, instead, he says, devote yourself to the sound, the preaching and teaching of sound doctrine. So what's going on? Here, Paul is drawing a connection between doctrine and deed. He's saying that the things that we teach and believe matter. They matter for how we live. He's saying that these things, doctrine and deed, are interconnected realities. Ultimately, Paul is grounding ethics in teaching. And he's saying that there is indeed an inseparable link between doctrine and deed. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. Sound doctrine leads to ordered living. Sound doctrine should inspire devotion. The inverse of this is unfortunately true as well. And this is what we've considered Uh, In in chapter one for the past several weeks, unsound doctrine leads to unsound living. False doctrine leads to disordered living. 
And so here, Paul wants to instruct Titus to put into order what is disordered in Crete and, and even in the church by teaching sound doctrine. Serve the people of God and get them on that trajectory of ordered living by teaching what accords with sound doctrine. Ultimately, what we see here is that doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. And so this raises a very important question for us. What is sound doctrine? It might be a word or a phrase that you've heard before, but is unfamiliar. It's something we can kind of throw around within the church. But what does that mean? How is that vitally important for our ability to live ordered lives? Here's a, a definition that I found uh, just really great. Sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. Sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. So there are two components to that definition that are worth teasing out. First, sound doctrine is the summary of the Bible's teaching that is faithful to the Bible. So sound doctrine is going to be derived from the Bible. It's going to be faithful to the scriptures. You can't develop sound doctrine apart from the word of God. There's a reason that Paul over and over and over again to his friends and to the leaders of the church said, preach the word. In season and out of season, preach the word. Build your life upon the foundation of the word. Go to the word over and over and over again. Formulate your ideas, your thoughts, your opinions based on the sufficient word of God. And so we go to the word and we study it faithfully, prayerfully with the power and the help of the spirit. And as we do so, we develop, we summarize doctrine, teaching. And so from the word, we develop things like the doctrine of the Trinity, Doctrine of God, doctrine of Jesus, doctrine of sin, doctrine of the church, and so on and so forth. Second, though, and important to the point we're seeing this morning, sound doctrine is useful for life. Useful for life. Sound doctrine means healthy doctrine. Sound doctrine literally means healthy teaching. It's something that's going to produce health and life in its receiver, hearers and receivers. And this is what I think Paul is getting at when he opens his letter to Titus by saying, I'm writing for the purpose of the lex knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Knowing the truth, knowing doctrine and the head and the heart leads to godly living. So this is why Paul urges Timothy, his beloved Timothy, to follow the pattern of sound words that he has heard from him. The same word used in Titus 2.1. Why would Paul want Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words? Well, because they produce health and life in his friend. So this is what Paul said Titus was to be about. It would be about the teaching of sound doctrine teaching what accords with sound doctrine. And not only Titus, but, but he calls us into this as well. The church is to be about the teaching and preaching of sound doctrine. The church is to be in the business of teaching sound doctrine. The church, rather than being like those who teach a false gospel that leads to disordered living, that ultimately reveals a dead faith, no, the church is to teach sound doctrine. It's the church's duty, it's her job. Teach sound doctrine that leads to ordered living. 
put the people of God on a trajectory of ordered living through the preaching and teaching of what accords with sound doctrine. So if we're still using the image of, Christ, of the Christian life as being a spiritual house, this is, uh, sound doctrine is that thing that will ultimately motivate the Christian to do the work of putting their house into order. You have to know that unpa- unpacking boxes isn't fun. Organizing a disordered house isn't fun. I'm sure there are a couple people out there who do enjoy that. I am not one of them. I have to imagine that most people don't enjoy that. Maybe, maybe there are a few of you, and if you are out there, then I'd like to talk to you after this service, please. Um, but, but it's a hard thing, and it's hard when you're when you've worked all week and you have a free couple of hours to devote that to a task that, that could be laborious and uh, it could be frustrating and doesn't seem to do a whole lot of good. Nevertheless, it's important. So how do we motivate ourselves to this task? How do we motivate ourselves to organizing chaos, to putting into order that which is disordered? Well, what the scriptures seem to say over and over again and what Paul is saying to Titus here is that sound doctrine is that thing that is ultimately going to motivate us and animate ordered living. What's gonna get, of, get us out of bed in the morning so that we can read the scriptures, hide in the word? Sound doctrine. What's going to motivate and compel us to love our neighbor when they're being unusually unlovable? Paul says sound doctrine. What's going to motivate us uh, and compel us to resist sin day by day and then have the boldness to go and confess our sin when we stumble? Sound doctrine. The answer Paul gives over and over again is the teaching and the receiving of sound doctrine. And I think that drives us to the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine is going to be all bound up in the gospel. As one author says, the heart and core and center and organizing principle of Christian theology is the gospel. He goes on to say, true doctrine supports, explains, and complements the gospel. Sound doctrine is going to root us in the finished work of Christ. It's going to declare to us that in Christ, our sins are forgiven. Our debt is paid. How can this not motivate, animate, ordered Christian living? You know, it's funny, if if we're really being honest, then none of us have hoped to have ordered houses, right? In one way or another, the, the, the doctrine of sin is going to reveal to us that we are disordered and we are going to bring dysfunction to our spiritual houses. We need something outside of us to come and to put us into order. And that is what Jesus does in the gospel. He comes along and he, he gives us something that is outside of us, something that is alien from us. He credits righteousness to our account. He declares his innocence over us. He gives us life in himself and in doing so, he enables us to live in a way, in a manner that is ordered. He puts us on that trajectory of ordered living. Jesus Christ, Lord of all, the one who sits upon his throne because he lives, we can live too. So this has massive implications for us. 
has massive implications for us as a church and has massive implications for us as individuals. I want to think about these two, uh, these two uh, levels of application for a second. First, this says something to us as a church. And in particular, it says something to the leadership here at Grace. Like Titus, we are instructed to teach what accords with sound doctrine. We are bound by that. We must take this charge seriously. Passages like Titus 2.1 give the church a bullseye for what the content of its teaching and preaching ministry ought to be. We ought to teach and preach a summary of the Bible's teaching that is faithful to the Bible and useful for life. And so this necessarily means that we be a people who preach the word in season and out, and in particular, that gospel word, which gives life. And so every person here at Grace who has an ounce of authority where a teaching ministry is concerned must hold Titus 2.1 near and dear to their hearts. So elders or people who are standing on the stage and preaching on Sunday mornings or Sunday school teachers or children and youth volunteer staff or grace group shepherds or Bible study leaders or whoever is out there teaching the word of God, they must remember Titus 2.1 and be controlled by Titus 2.1. We must teach what accords with sound doctrine. God is gonna use this to build up and bless this body of believers. He's gonna use this to ensure that the people of God get on the trajectory of ordered living. And to not do this denies God glory and it also abdicates our responsibility to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And no, we hold fast to Titus 2.1 because we want the people of God to live happy and holy ordered lives according to the work of Jesus in them and for them. If we want to see this achieved, we want to see this achieved because we want to honor God. We want to see him high and exalted. We want his glory to fill this earth and so we must commit ourselves to this task. So this passage says something to us as as leadership. It also says something to us as individuals though. There's an application for every single one of us in this passage. It strikes me that Paul draws this link between the teaching of sound doctrine and sound living. He says quite definitively that healthy teaching will produce godly living or ordered living. And if it doesn't, then there's something wrong with the teaching. That's a huge statement. It's a huge thing to say, and it makes me wonder, why do some people thrive under the teaching ministry of a church, in particular here at Grace, and why do some people seem to flounder under the teaching ministry of a church, and in particular here at Grace? I think there's probably a lot of reasons, and some of those reasons are things that need to be wrestled with as elders and dealt with, and we need to constantly be going back and and concerning ourselves with, are we teaching with what accords with sound doctrine. But I think one of the reasons that this happens is that this healthy teaching needs to be received. Ligon Duncan, as a pastor, says that the work of preaching isn't done until we're transformed. He says, we gather to be transformed. And so if you're gathering here Sunday by Sunday with an expectation of something less than being transformed, then that can have long-term damaging effects on the hardness of your heart. 
If we're gathering out of mere formal duty to, to, uh, mark a che- to put a check in a checkbox mar- check uh, on our list of things to do that will make us holy and pleasing before God, then that is a dangerous way to approach the preaching and teaching of sound doctrine. No, rather, we are to come faithfully, expectantly, trusting that the Lord works through this prayerfully asking God to work through this, that we might receive his word and be transformed, that our heads and our hearts might be full of good, beautiful truth that gives life. And so what's the point of application for individuals? Lean into the teaching ministry of this local church. Lean in. Seek to let the teaching of sound doctrine bring you life health and vitality before you lean into podcasts or books or or whatever other means of receiving doctrine that you have lean into God's appointed means for equipping the saints and building up the body of Christ the place where God has brought you by his strong arm so that you might be cared for so that you might be instructed lean into that place and develop sound doctrine, hold fast to sound doctrine, receive sound doctrine that you might live ordered lives and be put on that trajectory of ordered living. And so um, let us be a people collectively who are committed to having sound doctrine be formed in our heads and our hearts. Let us give ourselves to this trajectory. Let us do so with God's gracious help. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the ability to gather together today in his name. And we pray for for your help. Lord, we, in and of ourselves, uh, we are disordered. We are chaotic. And yet, Lord, by your grace, you have chosen uh, to make known the riches of your glorious grace in us through Christ Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would put into order what is disordered. You would cause us to be put on that trajectory of ordered living such that we would one day attain a mature faith, a faith that is able to display day in and day out with a single-minded focus uh, how great and awesome and wonderful and deep your love is for us. And so, Father, help us. Go with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.